All right, Colossians chapter number 3 this evening. We'll read the first ten verses. The Bible says in verse number 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, now I like this next part, and it doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with the sermon, but I think this is a tremendous application to you and me. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. I personally believe there's two ways you can interpret that. I believe you can interpret that uh, like how Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our access to eternal life. As the rich young ruler approached Jesus uh, in this morning's sermon, we talked about, he says, good master, what can I do to uh, inherit or gain eternal life? And I think you could look at it that way. But I also think you could look at it like this. We say sometimes, you know, well, sports is my life. Uh, My job is my life. My family is my life. I think you could look at it in a very real sense and say, Christ is my life. Everything else is is just peripheral. Okay, Everything else is on the outside. I have to work to live, um, but I do not live to work. I I, I have hobbies I enjoy, but I don't just enjoy those hobbies to give my life to them. I, I, I have family Uh, And I love my family. But even when it comes to the terms of my family, Christ is my life and everything else is dictated by that relationship. I think that's a tremendous application this evening. But unfortunately, that's not the sermon. So uh, uh, you wish. You wish that was every head bowed, every eye closed. You just wish. Verse number four uh, or five. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also walked, now that's past tense, sometime when ye lived in them. Now all these things is talking about the life that you had before you met Christ. And I don't care how good of a sinner you were, you were a sinner that struggled with all of these things at some point or at some level. You were a sinner. And we've talked about how even though you may have been a good sinner or a what we would term a bad sinner, you were still a sinner. And so this is talking about our past life before we met Christ. The Bible says in verse number 8, But now, so we talked about past But what is but now? If the Bible transitions and says, but now, I would think it's talking about present tense, right? We used to deal with certain things, but now as Christians, we deal with other things, and these are those things. But now, ye also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that you would be with the message. Lord, I pray that you would give me clear direction as to where to go. Lord, I pray that you would help me get rid of all the rest of this day. And everything that's happened and all the uh, things that have occurred. And Lord, I pray that you would help me focus in on this message and what your Holy Spirit would have us to accomplish tonight. Lord, I ask the same for every person in the crowd, whether some people have had uh, uh, laborious days or difficult days. I pray that during this time they would be able to focus in on what your word is trying to teach them and not about all the other things that have gone on today. Lord, I pray tonight that you would meet with us in a very special way, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Colossians is obviously an epistle written by the hand of the Apostle Paul. And the the book of Colossians really serves three main purposes. Those purposes are, first of all, it was written to the New Testament church to teach them how to declare their faith. 
it was teaching them the wrong things and the right things about their faith. Secondly, it was teaching them that they should defend their faith. To stand up for what you believe. And I am so thankful when somebody says something about our faith and I hear someone step up and say, no, what you're, you're, you're not even talking about right. The Word of God says this. When I was in college, we had an a, a oral examination. It's really the culmination of our four years at Bible college. We have classes. Some of them are easy. Some of them are difficult, just as most college courses. Some of them uh, require a lot more work. Some of them not as much work. But as you arrive to your senior year, before you're allowed to walk the stage and be a graduate from West Coast Baptist College, they do what's called oral examinations. And they take two of your professors and sit across a table from you in a chair. And they give you a, what basically you would consider a gift Bible or a reward Bible. Uh, with no helps, no cross-references, it's just the King James Version of the Bible. And they'll start out and they'll just ask you a question. So, uh, what do you got in your hand there? So, this is the Bible. What is that? And then you tell them, well, the Bible's the Word of God. And they say, well, how do I know that? And basically, for about two to three hours, depending on how good you are in your oral examinations, they grill you on everything from the Bible to baptism to uh, ecclesiology, eschatology, numerology, any type of ology except Scientology. We didn't get to that one, but uh, it, they basically grill you for two to three hours. You have no notes, no helps. There's no words that, no uh, uh, cross references that can be written out in your Bible. They hand you essentially a Gideon Bible and ask you to defend your faith. And some of the questions aren't easy, and some of them are. But for two to three hours, they grill you. They play devil's advocate. They try confusing you. They try getting you down wrong paths and rabbit holes. And, and you don't even know what's going on. But man, what an honor it was to stand and defend my faith. Defending your faith is, is one of the most admirable, admirable things. It is you standing up and saying, this is a book I believe in. You see... When scientists start telling me all the dis recent discoveries and all that stuff, and the, a psychiatrist tell me how new, uh, uh, new testing and, and new studies have proven that children don't respond to spanking, and when I hear all of that mess, you know what I say? But the Word of God tells me such and such, and I don't really have to listen to them anymore. And you defend your faith, and that's an admirable thing, and I hope that you, as a member of this church, are learning to defend your faith. If you do not know more about the Bible now than you did when you joined our church, we are failing miserably. As your pastors, we are failing that we have not taught you the Word of God. As uh, your Sunday school teachers, we are failing that we have not conveyed the truth of God's Word and the life-changing power of God's Word in your life. We are failing and let me just say this, it's very difficult to learn God's Word if you don't bring one. There is some level of blame to be shared with a pastor or a preacher who cannot adequately convey the truth of God's Word. But I believe all blame is left off from that man if you, as a member of a church, don't bring your own copy of the Word of God. If you don't have something to refer to, if you don't have something to look at, one time in the youth department, I stood up and I asked everybody to just put their Bibles under their chair, and I read from the Koran. And then I asked them, well, did anybody see a problem with this passage? And not one of them had an answer. How do you know if what I'm preaching or what pastor is preaching is right if you don't have your own copy? Man, we have individual soul liberty. You are responsible for learning God's Word. You are responsible for searching the Scriptures daily and finding out whether the things that we say are truly what God was trying to communicate through His Word. So, do you know more about God's Word now than you used to? I hope you do. There, this book really shares a threefold purpose. To declare your faith, to defend your faith, and then thirdly, to demonstrate your faith. I've been around people who would be the first person to stand up and start an argument about how Calvinism has nothing to do with God's Word and how it's just a, a, a conception of wicked men and yet they never offer the gospel on the street. 
I've been around people who would boldly proclaim that creation is a real thing and that the theory is uh, evolution. And, and they would do that, but yet their daily lives are so wrecked with sin that, that I couldn't tell if they were a Christian no more than, than any other Joe Schmo at the mall. So, while it is a beautiful thing to declare your faith and to defend your faith, an even more beautiful thing is a person who lives out that faith and demonstrates it daily. So there's a threefold purpose to this book. And we'll find in our passage this evening two things that we as Christians are to look forward to and our lives are to uh, be lived for. I'll show, show them with, to you in verse number 2. The Bible says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So we are to have affection on things above. I'm so thankful that this world isn't our home. Boy, if this was as good as it got, it's pretty bad. Every day you hear of another person getting cancer. Every day you hear of another car accident. Every single day you hear how the economy's in the trash and how gasoline is going up and how eggs are more now than what they used to be and, and uh, uh, the get price of milk is skyrocketing. And it just seems like every day we're bombarded by bad news. Not to mention we're bombarded with wickedness all around. I dare you to turn on anything but a sporting event and really, even in the commercials of those, you are bombarded with wickedness. And I tell you, you can't watch five minutes of TV. And, and uh, you know, I go to the movie theaters, but it's the posters you have to walk by to get to your G-rated movie that are so appalling. And then you have to sit through previews of movies that are just as wicked to just get to your little animated family movie. Boy, it's, we live in a wicked world. If this was all there was, I don't want it. The Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You'll have happiness, you'll have peace, you'll have things, but set your affection on the kingdom of God. So we're to have an affection for things above. But secondly, we are to anticipate His appearance. Look in verse number 4, the Bible says this, When Christ who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. So not only are we supposed to have affections on things above, but we are to be looking for the things above to come down to this earth. Boy, I want Christ to come back. And I remember as a little kid thinking, well, I don't want Him to come back today because then I'll miss the opening day of deer season or then I won't get to go golfing next week. And it's funny how kids think, but... Now as an adult, I look forward to the day when Jesus Christ comes back. Oftentimes I hear people talk about, well, I can't wait to see my loved ones. I can't wait to visit with all those who have gone. And that's going to be a great part of heaven. But I've got to be real honest with you. I'm just really excited for all of the naysayers who call my faith just a crutch and just a farce. I'm just really excited for them to have to see Jesus and for them to have to tell Him that He is a farce. I'm excited, as the hymn writer put, uh, I'm excited for my faith to become sight. For everything that I know God's Word says and all the struggle and all the difficulty, I'm waiting for the day when I can look up and see Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of God and He is the Son, uh, that S-O-N of heaven. He is the express image of the Lord and, and He's sitting there on the throne and the seraphims are over His head and they're all shouting, Holy! And I, I'm just excited for the day when I'll get to be in heaven and I'll look at streets of gold and I'll say, You ain't worth nothing. He is worth everything. And I'll look at big old pearly gates and I'll just say, you ain't worth nothing. He is worth everything. I'm excited for that day. Are you? Amen. Boy, I tell you what, it's going to be a glorious day when Jesus Christ comes back. And I can't wait to hear the scientists begin to explain why my clothes are here, but I'm not. Can you imagine the evening news the day that we all get raptured out of here? They're going to blame it on North Korea. They're going to blame it on Saddam Hussein's ghost. They're going to blame it on everybody, but they won't give God any credit. And then one day Jesus Christ will come back and He will no longer be friend, but He will be king. The last time He rode on uh, the colt of a donkey, the next time He'll be riding on a white horse. 
And I'm excited for the day when Jesus Christ is finally recognized by all the world as the King of kings and Lord of lords. What a glorious day. So we are to have our affections on things above and we are to be on, always looking for His appearance. But now we get down to verse number 5. And it's like the passage almost changes tones. It's talking about how we are to put off old things and, and we are to have our affections on God and we are to be looking for Jesus. And, and then verse number 5, it just kind of starts in a real negative tone. You ever known somebody that was just negative all the time and you say, hey, how's it going today? Well, it's supposed to rain. And, and that's a little bit how verse number 5 is. Everything's kind of good and saying, man, as Christians, we ought to be looking for Jesus. As Christians, we ought to be living for Jesus. And then verse number five, notice this. Mortify. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, mortify is not necessarily a word that I would see hanging at a birthday party. Mortify is not an excitable word. Mortify literally means to put to death. In fact, the Greek word here is nekreu, and that word is used three times in scriptures, once in this passage and two in other passages. And the other two passages, the word is translated dead. Necros is the Greek word which means a dead corpse. And now the Bible tells us in verse number 5, mortify or put to death your members which are upon the earth. And it lists a whole list of things that we should have no part in. Did you know there's a big difference between dead and almost dead? I'll give you an example and I hope that this doesn't offend anybody. But one day, me and JT and a friend of mine went out to our ranch and we were going to go hog hunting. Now we all took bows and arrows because that's what we wanted to hunt with. And I remember specifically, we, we got out of the truck and I said, hey, sometimes there's hogs up here a little bit, so I want you to grab your bow and we'll walk up here. Now, let me just tell you, this is pitch black dark. And we have on our bows these little lights that we turn on right when we see a hog so we can uh, harvest the animal. And I remember I got me and my friend out of the truck and I said, Hey JT, you stay here at the truck. I'll give you a call if we don't see anything. And then you just drive the truck up the road and then we'll go in and get ready for the hunt the next day. And so that was the plan. And I remember walking up the road there and we were trying to be real quiet. You know, like Elmer Fudd. Be very quiet. It's wabbit season. <laughs> and so that's what it was like. And I remember my buddy, we're, we're walking up the road, and he says, Wait, do you hear that? I'm like, hear what? And he just turns and starts walking through the woods. Which, I'm not scared of hogs, but hogs are at times scary, Okay? <laughs> And uh, he's just walking through this big, uh, this big, uh, uh, real thick patch of woods. And here in a second, I see him turn his light on. And I'm like, oh, he's probably lost. He's looking for me. And then I hear his bow shoot. And then what I heard next sounded a little bit like the brakes on a car right before a collision. Like, a... that's what I heard. And uh, his arrow has like a little light on the end of it, so you don't lose it when you shoot it at night. And instead of his arrow sticking into the ground, it's running through the woods. And I hear my friend say, Ah! And apparently the hog was facing him when he shot it, and it just reacted and started forward. And the hog ran within about two feet of his leg, trying to get away from whatever was stinging the hog. And so I'm laughing at him, man. I'm, I'm just giving him the hardest time. I'm like, I can't believe that you screamed like a little girl. And I, I mean, I was giving him a hard, hard time. Well, we could see the arrow bouncing through the woods, and the arrow went down about 200 yards, and we saw it come to rest. 
And so we figured that the hog was down there, and we gave the, time, uh, the hog a little time to expire. And uh, so we, we then, after about 15 minutes or so, we walked down to where the hog is, and I see the hog there, and I see the arrow, which is still in the hog, and I go down, I'm like, hey, here's your arrow, and I touch the arrow, and the hog stands up. <laughs> I'm holding the arrow with a mortally wounded hog about a foot from my leg. Did you know there's a great difference between dead and almost dead? Dead things don't hurt you. Dead things don't haunt you. Dead things are dead. You ever been to a funeral where the guy in the casket just set up? If you ever have, I promise you'll never go to another funeral. Dead things don't harm you. But you know what do? Almost dead things. The Bible here is not instructing us to almost put away these things. The Bible, in a very real sense, is saying, execute these things in your life. Get rid of them. Once you met Christ, these were a terrible substitute for gratification and pleasure. But now that you know Jesus Christ, you know ultimate pleasure and ultimate satisfaction. You know the one who gave his life for you on Calvary. You don't need these wicked things, so kill them. Do away with them. That's what the Bible's saying. And these things are, number one, in verse number five, fornication. Now, I want to be very clear tonight. Sometimes in church, it's like we don't want to speak on things that the Bible speaks on. We'd rather come to church and scream and holler and have a good time. But the Bible makes very clear that fornication has nothing to do with God and everything to do with the devil. See, God provided men a sexual appetite. It was His gift to men, actually. It was an expression of love for a man and his wife to partake in and enjoy one another. And yet the devil abused it. It was not a dirty thing. It was not a wicked thing. It was a beautiful thing that resulted in the multiplication of our species. God says you go forth and you multiply on the earth. It's not a gross thing, but man has our world and Satan made it a gross thing. Even kids grow up hitting puberty at younger ages now because they are more familiar and intimate with the details of sex and and, and other things like that. Our world is because... I mean, you can't even watch movies now without sexual innuendos hitting you right in the face. Little kid cartoons have sexual innuendos. And the Bible says, man, get away from that. Fornication is literally any illicit sexual intercourse or desire. This would include adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, and any sexual impurity of any kind. In fact, our pastor has taught us many times the word fornication in the Bible is the Greek word pornea. It is the exact word that we labeled pornography with. And so, things like this, whether it be pornography or adultery or fornication, it is all illicit, it is all against God, and the Bible says, kill it in your life. I truly believe fornication is the silent killer of Christians. You see old brother Joe start coming to church real frequently, and man, he's getting on fire for God, and after just a little while, it's like, His faith wanes and it's like the fervency that he once had is no longer there and yet nobody knows the answer and the church blames themselves when all the while Brother Joe was harboring fornication. It is the silent killer and we as preachers are doing a great disservice to our congregations if we do not stand up and proclaim its dangers. Man, fornication is a thing that will grab you and will not let go. It is the worst sucker fish. It is the worst trap that can grab you. Do not allow fornication to have place in your life. And most times, fornication starts very innocently. Man, it's not always somebody clicking uh, uh, on a website and typing in a URL address. Many times, it's clicking on an innocent ad that goes to an address. 
Many times, a, a sexual relationship outside the bounds of marriage does not begin because two people were so insatiably attracted to each other. Many times, it's because they shared an emotional connection before they ever shared a physical connection. And oftentimes, fornication starts so innocently. But can I encourage you to be a little bit like Joseph? And just if anything starts to feel that way, if anything starts to look that way, leave your coat and keep your character. Do not allow fornication to grab onto you. God provided everything you needed when it comes to sexual desires. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. God had a perfect plan and Satan destroyed that plan. See, that's the way it works. Satan's not creative. He's just a great copycat. He's a con artist. He knocks off what God creates and, and, and instills. Satan, uh, while Christ is Christ, Santi, uh, Satan is just the Antichrist. Everything God does, Satan has this cheap knockoff that allows us to think we're gaining some pleasure. But fornication is a thing that you cannot feed enough. You see, you cannot give fornication enough fornication. It is a bottomless pit. It is an, a, an ever-hungry monster in your life. And if you have it, get rid of it today. Repent and come to the Lord and say, God... I am going to get rid of this in my life because I know it doesn't honor you and it's hindering my relationship with you and my effectiveness as a Christian. Number one, we see fornication is listed here. Secondly, uncleanness is listed here. Now, there's many junior hires which I've quoted this verse to, maybe a little bit out of context. If You, know, you need to shower because the Bible says uncleanness is uh, not a good thing, but that's not what it's talking about. Uncleanness is specifically talking about a wasteful living or a luxurious, extravagant lifestyle. Did you know Christians were never meant to wear the nicest of the nice? We were never meant to have the best of the best. Our Savior, our King, came from glory and took on the form of a servant. Didn't He have a pillow? Some of us have Serta pillows, like the real nice memory foam ones. That's okay. And I'm not here to make you feel bad for having nice things. But I am going to say, we as Americans are one of the most wasteful societies of all time. Think of how much food we, com we consume and leave on our plate just to throw away. We are wasteful. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. The Greek word translates to a, a luxurious, extravagant lifestyle, wasteful living. Did you know that was one of Jesus' main complaints about the Pharisees? That they had too much and weren't giving enough? In fact, if you remember the parable of the widow where she cast in her two mites, who else put in that day? It was a Pharisee. It was someone who had a lot of money. He had excess. And Jesus even says, He gives out of His excess, but this woman hath given out of her need. The Pharisees had too much, and so Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye like whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones, and all uncleanness. It's the same word. They were wasteful people. And I want to make sure that as a church, we're not wasteful. Man, if you have the opportunity to give something to somebody, give it. If somebody asks of you a coat, give him your coat. If somebody asks you to go with him a mile, go with him the second mile. That's scriptural principles. Don't be wasteful. Think of all we waste and think of all that we could glorify and honor Christ with in our life. I remember thinking, or I remember reading this story a while back of a, uh, a foreign diplomat who had come to visit America. He was standing on a corner, and it just so happened that a lady had fallen out of her second story house into a garbage truck. Now, as the garbage truck is driving down the road, the uh, uh, lady with all of her might is trying to get the attention of the garbage truck driver, trying to get him to stop the truck. But the foreign diplomat happened to see the lady driving by in the garbage truck. And he says, 
There's just another example of how wasteful Americans are. That lady has at least another good ten years in her. We are wasteful, though. Man, just think of all the junk we have that we don't use. And while some of it is, we ought to, we ought to be thankful for everything that we have. And I know this isn't a popular message to preach, but this is what the Bible says. Christians are not to have excess and overabundance. If God has blessed you with a great job, man, I'm proud for you and I'm happy for you. But don't neglect your job and, and, and neglect the opportunity God has given you. One of the wealthiest men I've ever known in my life gave more to church than any person I've ever met. I've known about five millionaires in my life. Personally, on a, an intimate level, I've known maybe three. Two of them were the most miserable men you've ever met in your life, and one of them was happy. You know the difference? One gave and the other hoarded. A man with open hands is always going to be more happy. A man who doesn't make money his sole desire in life is always going to have the joy of the Lord in his heart. So if you have the opportunity to give, I encourage you, friend, give. It's a gift of the Father above. So uncleanness was one thing mentioned. Thirdly, inordinate affections. Look here, and the Bible says fornication, uncleanness, and inordinate affections in verse number 5. Now what is this? This is a state of mind that focuses on wicked living. In other words, it's constantly thinking about wicked things. Now, it's not action, it's just thinking. Sometimes we pat ourselves on the back for not putting feet to our thoughts. You know, we say, well, I didn't actually do that. But the Bible tells us, for whatsoever a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we're not defined by our actions, we're defined by our innermost thoughts. That's what the Bible says. And inordinate affections is constantly focusing on things that God would not have you focus on. The Bible says this uh, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, For whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, he committeth adultery in his heart already. So as God knows our thoughts, and He knows the intents of our heart, as that happens, it is our thoughts that are judged and not our actions. It's not an honorable thing to think bad things and not act upon those bad things. It, it's, not a, it's not admirable if you... Uh, hit your thumb with a hammer and you think curse words, but they don't come out. I was watching a show last night called Alone on National Geographic. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Alone. It's where these people are taken out to, I think, uh, somewhere just outside of Alaska. Maybe it's British Columbia. I don't know where it is, but it's this really wet environment and they have to survive there. It's got the highest density of black bears in the world. It's got cougars all over the place and it's got no food for these people to eat and they've got to live there by themselves until the final person taps out and they win the contest. And so I was watching it last night and this old boy uh, uh, was trying to boil him some, him some water. He was real dehydrated. And uh, uh, while he was boiling the water, the water flipped over, extinguished his fire, and he lost all the water that he so uh, desperately needed because he was dehydrated. And the man goes, oh, man. Uh, and you can hear this consternation in his mind. Because most people on the show, it's, they, you know, they have those uh, special harmonicas they keep in their throat. They just beep, 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 beep. You know, they start talking in robot language when bad things happen. I'm, it's weird. I've never seen it in real life. But they do it all the time on TV. But this guy didn't need to get bleeped. And then in a little bit, he came back on the TV and he goes, Well, I did not curse on camera. So that was a good thing. But if you had heard this good Christian man off camera, it would have not been good. <laughs> well, I understand what he's saying, but it's not an admirable thing for you to think bad thoughts and not act upon them, right? We're judged upon the thoughts of our heart and the intents of our heart. That's why the Bible says that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the, uh, divided even to the joints and the marrow. It separates your actions from your thoughts and deeds and it judges you based upon those things. So how do we correct them? Well, the Bible says that it is our bathtub. John 17 verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. 
Thy word is truth. The Bible tells us that we are to be washed through the water and the word of God. The Bible tells us that we are to think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and whatsoever things are of good report. Those are the things we are to think on. So what are you thinking on? Sometimes when it gets real silent in my vehicle as I'm driving down the road with my wife here in the passenger seat, maybe I've done something to upset her earlier in the day and I'm trying to, you know, start, initiate a conversation. I'm not one of those people that, I know people, and like my dad's one of these people, he can know there's a problem and just kind of let it go. I'm not one of those people, I'm a problem fixer, right? When I know there's a problem, I'm like, all right, let's just get it out in the open. You say hurtful things to me, and I'll be kind to you, but we'll just fix it. That's the way our marriage works, right? We'll just just figure it out, but I don't like things to fester. I don't like for them to get worse. You're not going to go to bed and mad at me because I'll I'll do something bad. I'm, I'm not going to do that, so... Sometimes I'll know that I've upset Amy or I've I've done something to offend her. And we'll be driving down the road and she's giving me the silent treatment like every mature adult does. And um, she's not here tonight. She's probably watching on live stream, so we probably have a problem to fix when I get home. But, But we'll be sitting there and I'll say, hey, what's up? Nothing. I mean, right, we all know this conversation, guys, right? Okay. Well, uh, and this is what I'll ask. What are you thinking about? As if that is not asking for a bomb to go off, right? What is going through your mind? Well, I was thinking about the ways that I could kill you, actually. I sharpened the knife yesterday, and it cut through the tomato well, so I figured it would go through your jugular pretty well. I, I don't know. Right? I mean... But I, I don't mind it because I, I, I'm ready to ask her, what are you thinking about? You just let it all on the line and we'll just figure it out as we go, but we'll get through this. You just tell me the problem and we'll fix it. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about when, when everything else is on hold and it's just you and your thoughts? What are you thinking about? Because the Bible says inordinate affections do not glorify God and we should kill them on the spot as someone that is taken to the firing line, is executed, get rid of thoughts that are not glorifying to our Savior. So in inordinate affection, someone said, let the mind of the Master be the master of your mind. And I like that. Let the mind of the Master be the master of your mind. Fourthly, the Bible says here, evil concupiscence. Evil concupiscence. And that's not a word that we would use frequently. I'm probably going to start using it more just to confuse people. But the Bible is saying lust. In fact, a pretty good definition of concupiscence is lust. And so, essentially, the Bible is saying evil lusts. Now, if an ordinate affection is thoughts on evil things, evil concupiscence is the craving for those evil things. Right, So it goes from just thinking on it to dwelling and constantly focusing on that. Did you know that desire leads to deeds and appetites lead to actions? If you finally think about something long enough, it becomes a craving in your heart. That's why they put the dessert trays at restaurants right in the front. Right? You ever walked into a restaurant and you see the dessert tray right by the door? It's like, oh, well, my mom taught me I had to eat this terrible meal to get to this point. And they want you to think about it the whole time you're in there. And then, and then your waitress will come. Did you save room for dessert? I can bring the dessert tray for you. And you ever wondered how they make plastic dessert look so good? I swear those things do not look plastic. And they look edible to me. But they're there to inspire your lust so that you'll think about it and then begin to crave it. The Bible says that lust has nothing to do with God. It does not honor God at all. The Bible says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then it goes on to say, then when lust hath conceived. So you see, thoughts move to lust and lust moves to action. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So evil concupiscence is lust. And we ought not lust as Christians. You can lust over much more than just uh, another person. You can lust over things that other people have. 
You can lust over things that you don't have, but lust does not honor our Savior, and they ought to be mortified, the Bible says. And then fifthly, covetousness. That's what verse 5 says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So covetousness is a greedy desire to have more. It's the constant craving for more than what you currently have. It is discontentment and it is disregard of the blessings you have, but it is a craving and a desire to always have more. In fact, the last of the Ten Commandments was this, Thou shalt not covet. It goes on to say you shouldn't covet your neighbor's house. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's manservant or his maidservant or his ox nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. You know what covetousness is? It's total ingratitude for the blessings you currently have. I'm reminded of the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 16 when they were so hungry, they were talking amongst themselves saying, it would be better for us to go back to be slaves than to be out here in this wilderness not having anything to eat. What does God do? He sends them something to eat. He sends them manna in the, evening, or in the morning and He sends them quail in the evening. Exodus chapter 16, everybody's happy now. God answered their desire. God gave them a blessing. Thank the Lord He answered our prayers. Now in Numbers chapter 11, what happens? They start complaining about the blessings that God has given them. What used to be enough is no longer adequate. What used to fill them and satisfy them no longer fills any type of void in their life. The Bible even says this, and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Uh, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And just two years prior, manna was a blessing, and now it's just become a burden. How easy it is to begin to covet things. They were even coveting returning to a bondage so that they could eat cucumbers. How many of you like cucumbers that much? I don't. You see, they're saying, oh, let's return to Egypt so we can have better food to eat. And the things that once satisfied them no longer do, did. They were covetous people. Sometimes we as Christians, we get a little covetous, don't we? You say, oh, senior so-and-so has a better truck than me. I wish I had the position that my supervisor has. Uh, my supervisor, if he had half the brains I had, we would, this company would be so much better. And we began to covet positions. We began to covet people. We began to covet priorities and, and properties. We covet. We say, well, if only my kid could make the, the, the 11U baseball team. My kid's better than this kid. My kid's better pitcher than the coach's son. So what does he even... And we covet positions. And we teach our children those things. We covet. But none of these things were to be something that Christians dealt with. You understand? Remember at the beginning of the message, I said, all of this is past tense, right? The Bible says, these things we did before we met Christ. But more Christians are caught up on those than the ones that we should be dealing with. And we have more covetous Christians today than we've ever had. We've had more Christians in fornication and inordinate affections and, 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 and all these others. We've had more Christians dealing with the things that we should not have to deal with and having to neglect the more insignificant things. And, and I say that almost hesitantly because all sin is sin. But what we've done is we focus so much on fornication and uncleanness in a Christian's life. Let's say these weren't supposed to be in Christian's lives. There's a difference between dead and almost dead. These things were to be mortified. They were to be settled long ago. When you met Christ, inordinate affections left you. When you met Christ, you got new appetites and new affections and your, your faith started looking up as opposed to looking around. These things Christians ought not deal with. But what we've done is we've applied our own scale of sin. 
Right? We've put sin on a scale. And we've justified in our mind which ones are better and which ones are worse. But let me submit to you tonight, the devil is more delighted that people aren't focused on these others in verse 8, and they're still caught up in the ones in verse number 5. He's delighted that nobody's preaching on the ones in verse number 8. He's delighted that nobody's bringing up that anger does not look like our God. He's delighted that he, uh, nobody's preached a message on malice in years. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time on the devil's delights. On the things that aren't spoken about and aren't preached about. But Paul right here says, these things are the obvious things of Christianity. You ought not deal with these, so let's move on to the things that people aren't speaking about. Verse number 8, I want to share with you the first, uh, the first delight of the devil, and we'll be done this evening. Verse number 8, But now ye also put off all these things. Number 1, anger. Now verse number 5, the Bible says mortify. What, what does mortify mean? Everybody participate, all class. Uh, when I ask the question, you answer. What does mortify mean? To put to death, to kill, to, to, to end, to, to put to death. Okay, good. So I know you paid attention at one point in the sermon. Amen. That's, that's encouraging. Good. Now verse number 8, it uses totally different terminology for these, doesn't it? Verse number 5, kill these. Number 8, put off these. It's the idea of a change of clothes, Right? You don't kill your clothes. You don't burn your clothes from the day before, do you? But you change your clothes from the day before. It's a daily cycle. It's a daily doing to make sure that these aren't our undoing. That's what the Bible's saying. Put off these, and the first one it mentions is anger. Anger. When's the last time you heard a sermon preached on anger? It's been a long time, hasn't it? Because we've kind of made these the sins that are in good standing, haven't we? The other ones are appalling. My friend, if a brother gets caught in adultery, what just a shame that is. But if a brother loses his testimony in a business meeting, it's righteous indignation. I mean, he's just standing up for what he believes in. No, Christians, we aren't to be angry. But I want to teach you tonight anger. I want to teach you what the Bible says about anger and not what you've heard about anger and not what verses have been taken out of context to teach you about anger. I want to teach you what the Bible says about anger. So first of all, anger must not lead to delinquency. Anger must not lead to delinquency. What that means is anger must not cause you to do things that would, you would eventually regret. The, Look, anger is an emotion. Anger is a feeling. It is not an action. Everybody understand the difference? I can feel this way, but not necessarily act upon that anger that I would have. The Bible puts it like this. Be ye angry and sin not. Hold on. So you mean to tell me it's okay if you get angry? As long as that anger does not lead you to sin, that's what the Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. So anger should not lead you to delinquency. It not ought lead you to do something that you would regret. For instance, on the road when someone cuts you off, you can get upset that you got cut off, but you going then to cut that same person off is leading to delinquency, right? You telling them how high they are on your favorites list with one finger is not necessarily a great thing for you to do. Are you going by and giving them a scowl? That's what I do as a Christian. Okay, right? I can't flip them off, even though I want to. Right? I can't. So what do I do? Thank you, Miss Dyer. Uh, she's like, wow, that's surprising. No, it shouldn't have... Right? You think, I can't believe it got cut off. What do you want to do? Well, I can't flip them off. I can't cuss them out because I'm a Christian. So what do I do? I scowl at them. I drive by. And... What do you? What do you think? I'm in here singing my gospel music, and you're out there cutting people off, trying to walk in the steps of the Savior, and you're trying to run me over. 
right? You, anger is an instant reaction to certain things. Right? If somebody hurts me, it, it may cause me to be angry, but as long as that anger does not then result in an action, the Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. But not only should anger not lead us to delinquency, I want you to secondly notice this. Anger must not be our default reaction. Right, that's what, that's what I've noticed is there are certain people that really deal with anger and it seems to be that they're a ticking time bomb. It's like they walk around with a chip on their shoulder daring to people to eat it. Now, is that, is that a weird? No, knock it off, I think. People, finally some people got it. Now y'all are imagining like a Dorito on some guy's shoulder. You're like, I'm going to eat that. And that's just my chip. <laughs> that's pretty good. Right? So there's some people that are just like waiting to go off. And like little things set them off. It's their default response. Right? Anytime anybody... And have you ever said something not meaning to come across in a bad way or not meaning to offend anybody, but somebody took it wrong? And, and you weren't trying to be aggressive or abrasive, but that's just how, it, how they received it. And then, well, I can't believe you would say that. Well, man, let me explain a little further because I wasn't trying to offend you or upset you. Let me explain what I was trying to say. Have you ever been around somebody like that? And their default reaction is to just blow up on everyone around them. They're just walking volcanoes waiting to get mad at the next person that makes them mad. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9, be not hasty in your spirit to anger, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now once again, the Bible is teaching us, don't be hasty to anger. Right? Anger in and of itself is not the sin, but easily getting provoked there, that is a problem. Because when you're so ready to be provoked to anger, and man, husbands and wives... If we could get this one thing mastered in our relationships, wouldn't it go a lot better? If we gave our spouse a level of understanding and extended them the idea that maybe they're not on the attack all the time, that would go a long way to developing relationships. But we're so hasty in spirit to get angry at the first person. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, verse 11, "...the discretion of a man deferreth anger." And it is glory to pass over a transgression. Maybe it's me, or maybe I'm just a fool. But it's a good thing when you can't even... You're on such a neutral playing field, or such a level. You're just kind of going with emotions, and nobody's going to upset you or anything. That even when people come to your attack, you just assume they're not meaning it. Yeah. Right? That's when we talk to people, and they say, oh, I can't believe so-and-so said it. This is what I always say. I'm sure they didn't mean it like that. Surely a Christian wouldn't come after another Christian like that. But as Christians, shouldn't we extend some level of benefit of a doubt? Did you know it's free to give people a benefit of a doubt? And just tell, you know, maybe, you know, we're friends. They wouldn't mean to hurt me like that. Maybe a couple days later, approach them and say, hey, did you mean that? Because I didn't think you did. But, but we ought not be so ready to be provoked to anger. Say, Brother Andrew, I don't believe one word of what you're saying. I know in the Bible that Jesus gets angry. Isn't everyone's favorite defense of uh, people drinking, well, Jesus did it. Isn't that what everybody's favorite defense of that is? I've heard that so many times. Well, didn't Jesus drink? Well, did, do you study your Bible ever? He, he made new wine and drank new wine. and didn't have time to ferment. But I'm sure you knew that because you study the Bible, right? But anyway, that's my favorite defense of people. Well, Jesus drank like he was, you know, drank like a fish or something. No, he didn't. Well, that's what people say. Well, Jesus got angry. I can go to a scripture in the Bible where Jesus just got so angry, he just blew up on everybody around him. No, take your Bible to Mark chapter 3, and we'll study Jesus' anger. Mark chapter number 3. Let me show you the only time in scripture. And let me say that again while we're turning there. Let me show you the only time in scripture the Bible says that Jesus got angry. Mark chapter 3 Verse number 1. 
And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, and that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which was, had the withered hand, Stand forth, and he saith unto him, them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil? To save life, or to kill? Jesus knows what these Pharisees and these naysayers are there to do. They're there to catch Him. Like, like someone sets a trap, that's what they're there for. Jesus walks in and is moved with compassion upon this man with a withered hand. And He asks them a question. And He says, is it a good thing to do a good thing on a, a good day? Or am I just limited to doing good on days that aren't your uh, day of worship? That's what He's saying. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? But they held their peace. Now, mom, let me ask you this. If you ask your child a question and your question and your child ignores your question, would you get angry? Hey, uh, what are you eating? What do you have in your hand? No, what do you have in your hand? Tell me what you have in your hand. Dad, when you ask your wife a question, say, honey. Okay, I just got convicted. This happened to me today. <laughs> I'm sorry, honey, if you're watching. Honey, what's the answer? Would you like to go there? Would you like to do this? Well, whatever you think. No. Tell me what you want. Well, I mean, whatever you decide, I'll go with. Don't pull the submission card on me. Like you're honoring God or something. You just don't want to answer. Right? So that happened to me today. So I'll need to get that right with my wife. But does that make you a little angry, husband? When your wife just, well, whatever. I'll follow your leadership because you're always right. Because you're God's man and you're always led by God. That's where my mind goes, right? I'm sure that's what she's saying. Right? Jesus comes out and asks these men a direct question. And they hold their peace. Is it okay to do good to someone, the men? Is it okay to do good? Verse number 5. And when He had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Remember what I said? This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus is called to be angry. And he was angry that people wouldn't answer a question. He was angry that people would not allow his miracle-working power to work in someone's life. He was angry that even though he was doing miracles in their presence, their heart was so hardened to who he could possibly be, they wouldn't even hear that he was the Messiah. And so he was angered. He was angered that sin had so hardened their hearts that they could not receive the message of the gospel. He wasn't angry that somebody said something to him, right? He wasn't angry because somebody offended him. Remember, this is the same man who was hung upon a cross and willingly laid his arms down and willingly knelt down so that men could spit on him and beat him and mock him. It wasn't that people were on the attack when Jesus got angry. It was Jesus was angry at the devil and this world for making these men so hard to the gospel. He was jealous for his God. He was jealous that somebody wouldn't listen to the message that he had. Remember when I said this is the only time in Scripture that Jesus gets angry? But what's going through your mind right now? Well, didn't Jesus overthrow the money changers? Didn't he go into the temple and, and overthrow the tables? And Man, I mean, you know the Bible never says he was angry. In fact, in the three times that that specific story is mentioned in the Gospels, he was so calculated in what he was doing, he went and prepared a whip to drive out the animals. What I'm saying is, Jesus wasn't angry when he was purifying and cleansing the temple. 
He had calculated what needed to be done, and he wasn't going in there in anger. He was going in there with a great zeal for his God, as the book of John puts it. With a zeal for the house of God. He wasn't angry that these people were doing these things. He just knew that they shouldn't be done. Look, Jesus got angry, but he was never angry at people. Those actions never led to him hurting somebody or affecting somebody. Look, anger is not the problem. The problem is the problems created from anger. When we allow anger to control our actions, when we allow anger to dictate to us how we should behave and who we should be mad at and how long we should stay mad at them, that is when anger crosses a boundary. Be ye angry and sin not. That's when anger steps into a whole nother category. Christian, do you ever find yourself angry? If you're saying, oh, not me, well, you're a whole lot better Christian than me. Because let me just tell you about my day. You remember last week when I so triumphantly stood up like a moron and said how wonderful my day had been? I said, man, I woke up to the gospel music on uh, Pandora this morning. They were playing good songs. This was last week, okay? Fast rewind to last week. Man, they were playing great songs. Man, we're having a great day. I'm just excited to be at church. I love the Lord, man. And I so triumphantly proclaimed to the world that I was having a great day. Let me tell you about my day to day. Both my daughters are sick. Probably both of them have strep. My wife is at home watching those girls, and she's saying to me, I just need a break, okay? That's the start of my day. I wake up this morning at 9.36 because my alarm did not go off. Silly me forgot to set my alarm. You know what time the Sunday school teacher is supposed to be at the church? 9.45? And at 9.39, I wake up. Thankfully, I took my shower last night. So I didn't have to do that. You're probably thinking, that's gross. Well, (laughs) I thank the Lord I did that. I I rush, I get my suit on, I finally get to the church at 9.59, and I still have not taken my my, uh, lesson outline from my phone notepad to any type of computer or any type of printed material or my iPad. So I get to the church and I'm rushing around. Oh, I've already missed some of the best parts. While I'm getting ready, like a madman, my daughter decides to put toilet paper in the bath, in the uh, uh, commode and flush it. So much toilet paper, in fact, that it overflows. So much so that she had just gone to the bathroom in that same commode that is now overflowing in my home. And I have to deal with all this at 9.39 in the morning when I'm supposed to be at the church at 9.45. But all's good. Sunday. (laughs) Welcome to life, I know. Finally get to the church. And I've got to get the lesson that I'm about to teach to the teenagers off of my phone notepad onto my computer because I forgot my computer up here at the church last night. So I I get to my computer and I go to where my Wi-Fi is and I see my Wi-Fi is not on. And I go to click on turning my Wi-Fi on and thankfully my Wi-Fi broke. So now my computer cannot hook up to Wi-Fi. So I spend about seven minutes typing up my outline on my computer, going to airdrop it to another computer, only to realize that you need Wi-Fi to airdrop. (laughs) Now it's 10.07. There's a room full of teenagers in the youth department. I still don't have a lesson. I, I go to where my iPad is, thinking I can just take a picture of my computer screen, right? So I can just take a picture of it and preach from the picture or teach from the picture. I go to get my iPad, which I plugged up the day before, only to find out that I didn't plug it in all the way. And now my iPad has 2% battery life. I have no way to print because the printer works off of Wi-Fi. And I'm already running way late. And then I go into the youth department and I lay this glorious egg of a lesson this morning. And man, life was so good. 
And then I go home and both my daughters are still sick. I come up here and spend all afternoon studying So on Miss Jamie's computer. I, I, my day was a little rough. And to be honest with you, there were times when I got angry. And as I began to prepare for this message, I thought, what a stinker that devil is. He heard me last week. He heard me stand up and say how thankful I was that I was at church. And he heard me say how thankful I was to be ready to worship and to preach. And man, I was just so ready for it all. And and man, I was just so excited. And the devil set out on me today with vengeance. And he tried ruining Sunday. I'll be honest, he came close. But then I got to studying anger. I realized that if I get angry and don't allow that anger to dictate to me how I'm supposed to be a Christian, I'm actually fighting a pretty decent battle. You know what? Tomorrow I know I'm going to wake up with a crosshair on my back because I preached this message. I know that tomorrow if my daughter flushes the commode, I better go check the other one because she probably did it in the other one too. I know I've got a crosshair on my back. But there's too many preachers not preaching on anger. And there's too many Christians thinking that it's okay as long as I don't blow up on the wrong person. No, you ought not blow up on anybody. Jesus never did. And I don't know, but as we begin to look at these, we're going to study some of the devil's delights that we have just glazed over and almost made them feel acceptable. But all of them, the Bible says, every day you've got to wake up and take it off like an old jacket and put on the new man with new appetites and new emotions and new feelings. That is what we are to do. So I'm excited about preaching this lesson series to you.